You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, at our studios at uh, Voice of Islam in South London. So I hope everyone's feeling uh, good and ready for the show today. Uh, as usual, um, we uh, address contemporary and secular topics during the show. Uh, we have a two-hour slot today, so I hope you're going to be with me for the whole two hours. Uh, if you want to join in the conversation, please do call me on or call us on 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at uh, Voice of Islam UK. And uh, in today's uh, show, we'll be covering in the first hour something uh, which is, I suppose, a well, I shouldn't suppose, but it is. There's a blight on uh, the UK society currently, uh, and it's the uh, topic of county lines. And we're looking at a particular aspect of county lines, obviously the drug trade from um, from city centres or yes, urban environment into rural environments or into the suburbs. And so the particular aspect that we're looking at uh, was actually picked up on by a article in The Guardian, um, actually looking at vulnerable children who are uh, specifically targeted by these gangs. So not just um, you know adolescents, but uh, special groups of children, uh, those who are vulnerable. So I'll be dealing with that in the first hour. And in the second hour, I'll be looking at something a bit more, I suppose, um, a bit more self-centered, uh, the idea or self-esteem, okay, self-esteem, confidence without arrogance. So, you know, we live in this society nowadays where, um, or maybe uh, it's a case of dog eat dog. You have to be, you know, have this persona, uh, this elevated self-esteem. But can that self-esteem or that confidence, let's say, that confidence um, actually turn into arrogance? I mean, is there any formula for it uh, can we be more in tune with ourselves uh, and know ourselves uh, to present that uh, exterior person uh, persona to society and our peer our peer group uh, to advance us whether it be in social circles or work circles so we will be looking at self-esteem confidence without arrogance uh, in the second hour without further ado I'm going to jump into the first uh, topic of county lines, vulnerable children targeted by gangs. Now, figures which were obtained by BBC Radio 4's File on 4 programmes revealed that there were more than 1,200 exclusions and suspensions of children assessed by social services to be grooming targets in England's four largest drug exporting regions between 2021 and 2023. So that's 1,200 exclusions from school uh, in the last... And, and these, these are targets, yeah, these children are targets for these uh, gangs um, in the last two years. Now, county lines, um, as I may mention initially at the top of the show, refers to a form of organised criminal activity where uh, urban drug gangs expand their operations into rural and suburban areas. They typically 
uh, employ vulnerable children, uh, young people, uh, to transport and distribute illegal drugs from the cities or the urban centres to, uh, you know, to locations outside. Now, this exploitation actually often involves uh, some form of coercion, definitely manipulation, uh, and violence, uh, making it a serious threat to the well-being of these children. County Lines has a devastating impact on uh, on the you know, vulnerable children. Now, these children are often targeted by gangs due to their susceptibility, which can result from various factors, including uh, a social disadvantage, maybe, uh, family issues, or special educational needs uh, and disabilities, send. And yeah, you can understand that you know, when, you, when you have uh, you know, children who are classified as vulnerable as well, they not only face challenges within the uh, education system, uh, and then those challenges actually uh, result in they themselves being excluded. Then you know you can you can you can imagine that this is a, a ripe, really a ripe ground for these uh, these drug gangs to to be picking on. Now in today's show. Uh, we'll be looking at county lines uh, or further or more in depth into the county lines and its impact on vulnerable children, which is uh, which is the pressing concern that requires... A, I mean, it, there's no one solution, right? But it has to be a coordinated effort from uh, local communities, uh, the law enforcement and support services. Um, the second leader of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community uh, His Holiness Mirza Bashruddin Mahmoud Ahmad, may Allah be pleased with him, once said, nations cannot be reformed without the reformation of the youth. So one reason why gangs uh, form is because you know, youth develop an inferiority complex for themselves because they do not have everything that they would like to have. Uh, these were, uh, you know, th- this is where early childhood training plays a key role. And, you know, we always have to think also, you know, with your children, who are their role, mo- role models, I should say? Initially, obviously, it's the parents. Um, and, you know, the current, uh, current leader of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Masra Ahmad, has made reference to this many a time, not just in his Friday sermons. Um, you know, he, he had a... a uh, in 2019, at the French, Jolsa Solana made a speech, which I will make reference to later on. But coming back to the subject of vulnerable children, how are they targeted? Uh, and, you know, why are they targeted? But I mean, the why is pretty obvious here, yeah, because they are themselves vulnerable. And you can imagine, you know, being uh, vulnerable and say, for instance, you are uh, a child with special educational needs. Um, you, rec- yeah, you, you rely on the adults actually being truthful, showing you the correct, you know, the correct path to uh, to walk on. Um, so yeah, that trust is almost blind, right? So blind trust in these adults. So you can imagine how easy it is to lure in uh, vulnerable children uh, from a you know from a gang's perspective. Now, County Lines is uh, an organized crime targeting these vulnerable children uh, and, you know, drawing them into 
illegal activities such as drug trafficking, being mules. Um, because, yeah, you can imagine you know, who, how easy it is really to transport drugs if you are a child. You know, it's, no one's going to think twice, right? Law enforcement's not going to think twice, really, um, if they see, you know, a, a kind of like a, a, a teenager, uh, a child, an adolescent uh, with a little rucksack, you know, going from one place to another, uh, especially if they're in a group or they're accom- accompanied by an adult, right? So you can see why, um, you know, vulnerable children or children per se are a perfect vehicle for transporting drugs. Now, a survey by the BBC's File on 4 programme, and this survey involved 55 councils in key regions, uh, revealed a concerning trend. Now, between those two years of 2021-2023, 1,200 instances of suspensions and exclusions of children uh, identified as being uh, at risk of criminal exploitation. Now, the child advocate Anne Longfield emphasised the need for greater efforts to uh, keep vulnerable children in the educational system, expressing concern over high exclusion rates in England. However, however, there are differing views on the direct link between school exclusions and gang involvement. Uh, with Tom Bennett from the Department of Education highlighting a lack of compelling evidence. One 13-year-old, however, identified as an at-risk, shared a harrowing experience of being targeted by county lines gangs, underlying the dangers associated with such exploitation. Uh, And to speak further about this topic of county lines and the vulnerable children, I'm joined by my uh, first guest of the day, uh, and it's Sheldon Thomas. Now, Sheldon is the founder and chief executive of Gang Lines. Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, Sheldon. Thank you very much for joining me this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Yes, thank you for having me. So we're talking about county lines, and you know we know, you know, it's a huge problem now. Uh, this drug-related trade, which is uh, filtering from uh, from urban centres, from city centres, out into the suburbs, out into rural, um, you know, uh, rural areas. So. I mean, you know, you're 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 dealing, you're helping to deal with this, right? Uh, with your organisation of Gangs Line. Now, could you tell uh, myself and our listeners out there, you know, the work that you do uh, and Gang Line's actual mission uh, and services that they provide to address this issue of county lines? Well, well Gangs Line was started because of the I murder rate um, that was in two thousand and eight, where fourteen, uh, not fourteen, about eight or nine young people were shot dead on the same day simultaneously across London. Obviously, mm. gangs are everywhere, but I'm just talking that's where Gangs Line started from. Mm-hmm. We was the first organisation to only um, employ um, or recruit former gang members. We were right. the first organisation to do detached um, outreach only in gang areas. So mm. we was the first. So, for instance, an example... Marsh Farm, Lucy Farm, over 20 years ago, we was there. Mm-hmm. Um, parts of Birmingham, we've been there. Manchester, we was the first. There was no other organisation. But because obviously back then we didn't have the social media to promote what we're doing. Plus, I didn't have the idea and the inkling of promoting. I was just doing the work. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
part of the problem that we're having is people like that um, educate the person that you just mentioned said there's no proof between school exclusion yeah there's when no there's have, not a link this is the yeah, uh, this no is link. tom bennett from the department right, of so, education yeah so when you have people like tom bennett who can't even relate to his own people let alone black asians mm-hmm. they can't relate so wh- this is this is their talk every time you come to them and I'll give you an example. I went to Jackstraw in 2000. Now, I had gone there and I said, listen, we've got a gangs problem and it's going to get worse and the age group's going to get down. What do you think he said? The same thing. Oh, mm-hmm. where's your evidence? I'm a former gang member. How, mm-hmm. how are you asking somebody who does qualitative work for quantitative data? That mm-hmm. doesn't make sense. So this is what they do. And then what happens is when somebody from a middle class background gets caught up in it like somebody white middle class Mm -hmm. from um, a nice well-to-do family gets caught up in it that's when they react Mm -hmm. but if you're from a poor white community black or asian they don't react and Mm -hmm. what they do is they use that word oh we want evidence now Mm -hmm. let me explain to you you don't need to have a statistics degree like me to work out that there is a link between school exclusions Now, I'm going to tell you why they don't want to talk about school exclusions. Mm -hmm. Most of the teachers that exclude kids are white. Mm -hmm. Most of the teachers. Most of the teachers... But but hold on, can I I just jump in there, Sheldon, right? When when you... I mean, we don't know, or I don't personally know, how... um, a child is excluded is yeah it has to be it can't be just a uh, a one strike no, no, and you're no. out there has no, to be no, no, some no. I'm kind of that, though. Yeah. i'm not suggesting that i'm okay. not even actually telling you why they were excluded let me explain when i say to you if you're in a school and a majority of the kids in the school are black yeah mm-hmm. or asian why do we still have schools where 90 percent of those teachers are white why do we have that now, secondly... Because we've got a lack of teachers. That's why. No, there isn't. No, there isn't. <laughs> what it is, is their recruitment strategy mm-hmm. is not geared to recruiting black and Asian teachers. Right. It is not acceptable that we're still in 2023 that I can go to 90% of the schools in England that are literally 90% white, where you've still got a majority of kids who are either Asian or black. So that's a problem in itself. Mm-hmm. Secondly... It is well known that white teachers are not culturally, uh, they're not culturally in it. They don't understand the culture of black people or of Asians. So when it comes to dealing with them in the class in terms of them being disruptive, in terms of kids not um, doing the right thing, they don't know how to deal with it. And mm-hmm. so what happens is they, they get confronted and they feel intimidated. I've seen it with my own eyes. And after a couple of maybe two or three times they speak to the kid they tell them to come out and before long a couple of incidents happen and they get excluded it is not a coincidence that the highest exclusion rate are poor white kids and black kids why is that we still got that right now and yet when you say to them there is a link secondly if you look at the recruitment strategy of gangs they are going to go for kids who are not in school Mm-hmm. They're going to go for kids who are vulnerable. They're going to go to kids who, um, you know, maybe don't have a dad. Because a lot of these kids, if you look at their backgrounds, mm-hmm. most of these kids don't have any dads. And but I'm, but I'm, Sheldon, I, can I just, I, I understand where you're going with this. Don't get me wrong, right? Just because we're, we're, we're kind of like 
missing the point of the first question, which is like, I, I want to know what Gangline's mission is then, yeah? I well, mean, there, sure. there, is, there, there, is, there is the problem, right? And we're going to delve into that later on. Okay. But first off, you know, first thing off the I, bat, I, yeah, Sheldon, I, tell me what you guys are about and how we're, 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 about, we're making this better or how you're we're, making we're this just, better. We're just about prevention, right? We're about preventing, that means going into primary schools, which mm-hmm. is another problem, right? So we're about prevention and educating young men about um, the, 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 the pros and cons of what you're getting into. Because remember, first and foremost, these guys get into it because they want to make money. Yeah. And that, that's, that's the name of the game, okay? So what we're trying to do as former gang members, because we've been shot at, stabbed and all of that, right? So we're going in there and we're saying to them, listen, we wanted to make money too. We wanted to be against the system, mm-hmm. but you won't win. So I give them examples of most of us being shot dead. Like my, most of my gang, the people that I was hanging with, they're dead. They've been shot wow. dead and so forth. So like nine of my friends have been shot dead. I've been shot up about 15 or 16 times. My, my, the, the last time I got shot at, the bullet just missed my, the, the side of my ears and, wow. and blew the guy's head off next to me. So when you're giving young people examples, real life, tangible experience, life examples of what it's like being a gang they begin to realize that the realness of it is not what they see because remember they look at the realness on youtube but but isn't isn't that a factor of like you you quote i mean you've started this organizations back in the you know was it 2009 you said right um and now we're 2008 right so we're 15 years down the line and we're still seeing this problem and you know i i personally think i'm i'm in my 50s right so you know social media has has passed me by (laughs) but not for the kids out there and that maybe you know and i understand the you know the message you're you're putting out there which is look you know what look at me i've experienced it all i've risk my life i've had my rice my life kind of you know flash before me don't do it and that is a, such a what's the words that's such a you know emotive right argument that you can use however to counter that i mean you know the kids nowadays and i say youths nowadays i mean they're on these uh computer games right they're on their consoles and they, you know, they're virtually killing people. You know, uh, call of action, uh, called is it called call? Call of duty. Yeah, call, call of, of duty. duty. All these kind of games. Yeah, they feel that they're the ones who are shooting, killing. They're out there, and then it actually takes for them to actually take a shot, maybe to realize, wow, this is real, right? I wouldn't say that the gaming industry is at the center of why we've got... No, no, I'm just saying another factor is out no, there, right? No, it's not. This is, this is what I'm saying. Why, this is what the, the politicians are doing. They don't want to address the root causes. Mm-hmm. So what they do, they go and put it into other things because they're like, oh, Call of Duty and all of that. Let me tell you, I'm a former gang member. I've been going into... I've gone into over at least 15,000 schools. I've gone into schools. And one of the things I've realized, it's all about vulnerability, your home life, where you've come from, and those are the root causes and unemployment, school mm-hmm. exclusion. So when you've got people in government um, in, in, in certain areas, I'll give you an example of an MP in Chelmsford. She refused to accept that there were 11-year-old drug dealers in Chelmsford, right, because she wanted to make out as if Chelmsford was untouched with gangs. Mm-hmm. Now, 
anyone who does gangs work like me will know there is no area untouched with gangs. But only an MP would come out with that because these MPs don't care about people. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand why we keep going to them for some sort of answer. These people cannot relate to anybody but themselves because what they want to do is get the next vote in. Mm. Like Jack Straw, he sits in a room and tells me that, oh, where's your proof? Where's your data? And Jack yes. Shaw was the then, I think, Labour the Home Secretary, Home Secretary right? Yes, he was then the Home Secretary. Mm. So, so, so I get the so message, the, or I get, I get your personal um, involvement with, say, for instance, establishment in terms of uh, central government, right? Mm -hmm. And I, and I pretty much um, agree with that fact. Yeah, that you know, regardless of. Uh, which side Party. of the political yeah, right. um, divide you are, whether you're yeah. Labour or uh, Conservatives, that the, the overriding, um, I suppose, prerequisite that, you know, give me proof, give me proof that this is happening. And I get mm -hmm. that. I get that from you, yeah? Because uh, yeah, I think even when you first made the, the, okay, you know, there is this, maybe there's this race, right? This race issue there. Uh, maybe let me correct you because you need to be careful mm -hmm. when i'm speaking i'm not speaking because i'm angry at anybody let me tell you something here i've been doing this longer than anyone in this country i started engaging gang members in 88 oh, so right. people need to understand when i'm talking i'm not talking from some angry black guy mm -hmm. i'm speaking from an, a point of view of facts mm -hmm. the fact is this country only gets involved when it affects them or when it becomes national news. Let me tell you this. Before um, Reese Jones was shot dead, that's the little white kid in Liverpool, 11 years old, mm -hmm. right, who was shot by a guy called Ray Mercer, okay, from a Croxteth gang. That was the only time they decided to talk about gangs. But up until then, because it didn't affect them directly, mm -hmm. that's the reason why we're in the mess now. If you look at Bedfordshire, if you look at Cambridgeshire, if you look at Gloucestershire and Hertfordshire, they are riddled with gangs. But the only reason why they're now tackling because it's on their doorstep. Mm -hmm. So please be careful when I say. No, no, I'm, I'm not making. I'm, I'm not. I, look, I'm not inferring that this is that you're an angry black guy, right? And that this yeah. is that issue. What I was trying to make reference was that to me. I don't think you need to have statistics regarding this. That That's you know, right. I mean, the thing, the, the thing is, right? It's pretty much, and and I think you said, look, you don't need a degree in statistics, okay? Uh, to quote yourself, and I, I I agree with that. I don't think you do need a degree in statistics because for me, it's actually common sense. There's no academic. Um, evaluation of this because uh, I mean I don't know if you were listening to me at the beginning of the show vulnerable children right those with special educational needs and disabilities those from less uh, advantaged households right will always always be easy prey because of the nature of the beast okay so to me that's common sense so the fact of the matter is that uh, I think the stat I quoted 1,200 uh, children have been excluded from 55 councils in the last two years. That is a big issue because that means that you've got 1,200 children out there who are prime targets. I'm just going to let you know that that figure is double. 
Because wow. This is the problem. I'm just going to let everyone know. Cause why, I, why is that figure double, Sheldon? Because let me explain to you how it works. Okay. These people constantly lie because they don't want you to know the true problem is out there. So when any time they give you a figure, you have to double that figure. So an example would be when they were trying to say, oh, London's only got 3,000 gangs. Who told you that? Because if they had done qualitative work like what we did as Gangsline, you would know that that figure is double, almost triple that when you go to Birmingham, when you go to Manchester, when you go to Liverpool. These people, let me explain to you how it works. They only count the ones that's either been arrested or been excluded. But there were many young people who have never been caught for selling drugs, who mm -hmm. have never been caught on county lines, who have been excluded and no one knows about them because the education system doesn't have a proper follow-up system for when a young person gets excluded. So there's a lot of thousands of kids who have been excluded. Yeah, I know. I mean, no you, you, you have the pupil about. referral units, right? And they are not very well... Um, administered, let's put it that way, in a, in a, in a nice way, right? But yeah. coming back to, you know, the, you know, because we're talking about generalities there, and the very, very um, significant generalities, right? But I, I just want to kind of like bring it back to, yeah. uh, you know, gangs line, right? So you go into schools, you yeah. uh, approach, you know, the children, you let them know your own personal uh, experiences, well, right? Uh, what we do, we do assembly. So for basically... Okay. So local authorities will invite us into the schools, the mm -hmm. ones who are not afraid of the truth. Yeah. Right. So we go into schools and we educate children. So we educate primary school, secondary colleges, and I deliver lecturers because I'm mm. a part-time lecturer. So, so yeah? sorry, can I just jump in there again? Sorry, I'll keep on kind of like interrupting you, Sheldon, right? Because it's so interesting to me. It's kind of like I'm just, you know, questions are coming to my head, right? So, so when you who who does the approaching from schools? I mean, do headmasters and you know uh, it's safeguarding leads sometimes or headmasters? Yeah, you know, do they recognise that? Say maybe they have a problem with drugs within their school, and then they say no, right. No, no, no. Basically, what happens is it's not necessarily drugs. Some of the schools do identify they can smell weed in the playground, but most of the time it's the behaviour. So you do find in the in schools there's a there's a teacher that will sense something's not quite yeah. right. Yeah. So what happens is is that for, so for instance turning up late, mm -hmm. turning up hungry, um, always messing about in school. Mm -hmm. um, so, so they be, they've they've worked out by looking and and, and looking at the way the kids behave that something ain't quite right. And then what happens is they develop a pattern. It's a pattern. So yeah, yeah. they look for patterns within the school. So mm -hmm. for instance, let's just talk about year eight, nine, and ten because that's where the gangs are usually centered. Mm -hmm. So they look for patterns. So if they find more than five, ten, fifteen, twenty kids in each year group have got this pattern of behaviour in the playground, um, in the corridors. Um, they begin to realize there's a problem. So then they will call me in and say, listen, we need you to kind of deliver an assembly to all our year groups around the dangers of certain things. Then what happens is after I, I do the talk, you'll find a long queue of young men and women coming up to me and say, yeah, my brother, yeah, he's, he's in that, he's like that. You're right, what you're saying about my, my um, people's parents, blah, blah, blah. So the truth begins to come out because mm -hmm. what happens is when you're a former gang member, you know what the issues are because you've lived it yourself. So yeah, but you the thing is, Sheldon, right? Do you, I mean, you start saying, you know, you get these cues formed after your assemblies, right? Mm -hmm. uh, is it that 
I mean, is it that easy? Because you would have thought that maybe, you know, you feel, you know, because there is the threat of violence, okay? That's always there from these gangs. Like, if you if you tell on me, right, or if you if you're if you grass, then that's it. Not only will you get, you know, not only will you get visited by violence personally, it's your family members as well. So is there some kind of, I don't know, do you have some kind of protocol whereby, you know, you can give further follow-up, you know, information, advice, you know, in a kind of more, what's the word, you know, not some kind of like upfront and visible um, well, methodology. Well, it's confidential. Gang is a confidential organization. That's the first and foremost. Secondly, mm. generally speaking, because we're former gang members, young people don't mind talking to us. It's what they don't want to do is talk to teachers who are statutory. They don't want to talk to teachers. They want to talk right. to former gang members who can relate to their lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Secondly, when you're dealing, because we've got, we, we was the first organization to go into trap houses. When we've gone into, into what, trap sorry? houses, Trap houses. So okay. trap house is where um, the older gang member who's about 20, 21 mm-hmm. will find a property of normally it's normally a white middle aged guy. So normally any a white middle aged guy mm-hmm. between the age of 29 to 47 who's got learning difficulties or got an alcohol problem or got a drug problem. What they would then do is then offer that person to pay their rent or give them drugs, or give them yeah, it's easy money then, they, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And then they say, listen, then my boys will come in and we'll use your property to make the drugs. So that's mm-hmm. what a trap house is. They don't call it that no more. They call it bandos, yeah? Right, so okay. when they when they go into, when I, I we was the first organization to go in there. We was going into um, bandos when these guys were carrying guns. Like we went into a bando in Manchester. They mm-hmm. were sawn off shotgun, a Glock. Um, um, nine millimeter gun, all in all in those places, and so we've got the confidence and the um, credibility because those gang members are not going to look at us and say, "Oh, you're coming to take over our patch." So we don't get um, intimidated. We don't get um, uh, you, you know feel that we're going to um, be hurt, and we don't feel that we're 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 kind of um, taking over their spot. What we're do, what they have acknowledged is that they have acknowledged that we're older than them and that they use, they normally call us big man or father, yeah, mm-hmm. because most of them ain't got no that. So they look at us in a respectful way. I'm not saying, and I'm not going to say this on air, that I stopped all of them selling drugs because mm-hmm. that is not, not... What I have done is I've put something in their mindset that they don't get on a normal day. So on a normal day, and I'm not saying this is all gang members, by the way, I'm just saying the ones that I've engaged with, on a normal day, they, they will be get up at, in the afternoon or early in the morning or late at night or whatever to go and um, sell their drugs. And the, the people there around are quite negative. So what happens with gangs, right? We go in and we put a different spin on their mindset. We don't okay. go in there and say, don't carry this, don't do this, don't do that. That's what school teachers do. Yeah, because you're already you're giving them a negative, which which is, I suppose, is counter, or it's intuitive. Counterproductive. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's counterproductive because yes. then you're getting their heckles up already, right? Yeah, it's like, exactly. look, you know what? You're giving me the same message as all the kind of like those bods who never yeah. listen to me anyway. Yeah. 
So we don't go in like that. We go in on a psychological front point mm-hmm. because we realize that when we, I came out of a gang, the, the, the people that was educating me, now I'm going to name drop, so I'm not going to try and show off, but the people that were educating me were like Jesse Jackson. So Jesse Jackson, I'd say that he's out. I'm telling you, um, Sheldon, you can name drop all you like because I ain't got a clue, mate. <laughs> so, right, so, so Jesse Jackson <laughs> used to march with Martin Luther King. Oh, okay. okay. Oh, no, no, of course, Jesse Jackson, Reverend. Yeah, Jesse Jackson, yeah. You, you, you forgot his moniker, Reverend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so he's, 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 so I was at his house, right? Okay. So when these people spoke to me, they didn't say, oh, don't carry a gun, don't do this. What they'd done was they got into my head and, 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 and made me think differently. And this is what's me. Now, that does take long. That's mm-hmm. not a quick fix answer. And this is where the local authorities and the government don't want, because they want quick fix answers. They want you to go in there and tell them, don't do this, don't do that, and they want it quick. You can't. When you're dealing with a young person that's been in that life for two, three years, that, that means they're entrenched. You can't go in to a situation where a person's entrenched and expect them to change because you've turned up. So what I what we've worked on is that it takes time, it takes consistency, and and it takes a it takes a lot of credibility, and that's what's missing in um in this atmosphere of work in terms of professionals because the youth offending workers the preparation workers most of them have never lived this lifestyle so when they come into contact with them they can't relate to these young guys mm-hmm. or young girls so one of the things that i would say gangsline is specializing is that we've got the credibility of the streets we've also because i'm got the credibility of the streets it enables me to deliver lectures so that i can educate the next social worker the next police officer so I can educate them about the real streets, the real roots, the real causes. Because the mm. problem we have today in Bedfordshire, Cambridgeshire, they don't want to address the root causes. They want to address the symptoms. Mm-hmm. And the root cause of Bedfordshire, I'm just going to use Bedfordshire example. Mm-hmm. If you look at the exclusion rate of black and mixed race and Asian kids, it's very high. And yet they won't address that, but they want you to address gangs. But mm-hmm. how can you address gangs without addressing school exclusion? Well, no, the thing sense. is, like, it's it's like what comes first, right? The chicken or the exactly. egg. So and, well, what I was going to say, Sheldon, right? So, so, you know, where do you now, I mean, what have you seen, right, is the effect of uh, these gangs, these, you know, county line gangs setting up these operations with these vulnerable kids here? I mean... How? What kind of uh, effect does that have within these communities, within Bedfordshire, within these, um, you know, these these kind of like non-urban areas? Then, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, it's gone past just getting vulnerable kids because mm-hmm. we have middle-class white kids who are now drug dealers, and part of it is the music they're listening to. So, right. trap and drill music is at the centre of it. Okay. Trap and drill, because you've got to understand, I, I, I've got, I had two, two girls, one from Reading, one from Oxford, mm-hmm. right? If you saw their houses, you would be blown away. They live in some big mansion detached house. So you're wondering why. Let me explain to you what the girl said to me, the girl from Reading. She said, I spend no time with mum and dad. Mum okay. and dad is always out. So I'm like, hang on a minute. So we've got vulnerable kids who don't have a dad. And mum may have issues. Mm-hmm. Then we've got rich kids who've got mum and dad, but mum and dad's never home. So now you've got to understand 
what these kids are missing is the attachment of their parent. And if you go to the... Well, it's that first role model, right? Yes, that's right. So if you go to the attachment theory and you go to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Mm -hmm. you will understand that that's what's missing in Britain. We are not building relationships with our children. What we're doing is building relationships with our nine-to-five jobs Mm -hmm. because our nine-to-five jobs are so more important than our children. And then we wonder why this girl from Reading started dating a guy who is a gang member from Catford. <laughs> it's from a bit of a, this is a bit of a, a bit of a trek as well, right? But you know how she done it? Because of the music. Oh, okay. She started listening to the music, loved because she was bored out of her mind because her mum's never at home, dad's never at home, because they both run businesses and, and so forth. So they're never there. So she was listening to the music. She messaged the guy that was rapping or emceeing on the track. He responded in two minutes, she said, mm-hmm. and within the next day he was down there. Wow. So, so what you've got to understand is we've moved away from just vulnerable children in children's mm-hmm. own foster care, um, children with no dads, children whose mum's got issues, to children whose mum are just working. Mm. So actually, working. yeah, this leads me on to a question. It's like how... Um, what is the main kind of like MO for these gangs then to attract uh, you know, children, whether it be, you know, kind of middle class children, like you're saying, or the vulnerable children? Is it just money? Is it just no, that? It's money and the thrill. Right. So the middle class kids, they don't necessarily need the money, but they mm-hmm. love the thrill. They love the thrill. Mm, taking themselves out of their reality, right? Taking themselves out of being bored at home. Mum's never there. Because you've got to understand, the attachment theory is so clear. If you don't form a proper relationship with your child, it is actually stated that your child will find it difficult to form positive relationships growing up. And the problem with Britain and most Western society we are more interested as adults of earning money, yeah. big money. Like Materialism, you know, ultimately, right? Material that we would abandon our children because we want to chase the money. Mm-hmm. So you've got to understand, children are, were never asked to be in this world. We brought them in the world, mm-hmm. but yet we abandon them when we get a promotion. Oh, I can't come home tonight. I, 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 I need to work late. Look at, look at when I go into Felton. When I go into Felton or Cookhamwood or Brixton Prison or Pentonville, it's filled with teenagers who will tell you almost the same identical story. Right. One kid became a gang member. All he wanted his dad to do was take him to a football match because he played for Dagenham and Redbridge. He was a fantastic footballer. Mm-hmm. So when he was playing for Dagenham Redbridge, he was one of the kids that didn't have their dads there or parents there. When I spoke to his dad, his dad said he's too busy. So you've got to ask yourself. So this is what happened. He stopped playing football and started selling drugs and carrying a nine millimeter. Wow. So you've got to understand what, what we're in. When you ask the question about what's going wrong with county lines, what can we do, whose fault it is, it's simple. 50% of the blame is parenting, and the other 50% is the government. Mm -hmm. Because parents are not parenting children anymore because we want to work and earn big money and get promotion and become managers and then become directors and become this and become that. And MPs are not interested in anything because all they want to do is make sure you vote for them in the next election so they can remain MPs or remain councillors. So you've got to understand everyone has an agenda and the person who ends up suffering 
are children. And mm. guess what? A gang member told me a long time ago, it was a gang called Custom House Gang Member. They had 67 members in their gang, okay? And this is what the guy told me. He said to me, um, if you're not going to spend time with your children, we will. Wow. So you've got to understand, if you, if you don't want to, if you don't spend time with your children and giving them the right principles, the right morals, then, of course, they're going to think, well, you know what? I, I'm, I, I, Fingy, Fingy likes me. Oh, Johnny down the road likes me. I, 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 I'm, I'm going to hang with him. And then Johnny down the road says, you know what? Do you want to earn a little money yet? You want to you wanna go and do something for me? Well, back? no, I mean, this, this yeah, that's, uh, I suppose that's, you know, a taken, right? If you get a second role model who, I wouldn't say usurp or just takes over that, that, that place of your parents, gives you something that you require um you know just just attention right simple thing attention uh mm -hmm. and then you're going to go with what they're going to ask you to do i mean this is fascinating uh sheldon because it is i, I mean really it's it's not i suppose it's it's nothing new because you've been doing it since like you said like since 2008 right no no 1988 okay 1988 was when i set gangs line okay so you've been doing it for over 30 odd years. Yes, I mean, you know, so your experience is there. There's no doubt. There must be a percentage of those children who do come from, uh, I wouldn't say broken homes, but say a normal kind of like average home, right? Where the parents aren't so focused on the nine to five making money, right? So, right. yeah, what are, so for those, right? Actually, I, I shouldn't have even put those uh these households as a uh, a pointer but actually what i want to hear from you is you know what are some of the warning signs that you know us as parents you know teachers out there communities in general i mean what should we be looking for right in terms of um you know vigilance regarding you know potential gang involvement of you know these these uh, vulnerable kids then simple language change Okay. change um bringing in being secretive not allowing you in the bedroom so for instance when i grew up i grew up in the 60s yeah mm -hmm. so i grew up in a period where you, you parents walk into your room there was no such thing as oh, yeah well you didn't keep you you, you couldn't you didn't have any closed you doors right you couldn't you couldn't do that yeah. so today because of the way england is and the way the western society operates it totally operates against the culture of black people or of asians or of travelers it operates against it so what it does it tells you oh you can't go into your kids room they have rights mm -hmm. and what happens is the kids use that manipulative thing and they try to stop you from going in the room so what's happening here is um parents are scared to confront their kids because mm -hmm. of the society we're in, totally scared. We've got parents who are being beaten up by their children, by the way. So wow. people need to understand that. So let me just be clear. We're here talking about parents who are not good parents. Let me tell you right now, we've got young men who are beating their parents up, their mums, punching their mums up because they want to go out the door at one o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. Okay? I can talk to you about several incidents in but the then, last year alone. If that's the case then, Sheldon, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, I understand the argument uh, that you're saying that, you know, why, um, you know, these youths, these, these vulnerable kids uh, are being, you know, are being groomed, join these gangs, right? 
because there's that lack of attachment, uh, lack of parental guidance. But there must, you know, there must be, you know, a percentage of parents out there who give them guidance. And then you're you're yes, now they saying do. They, they do. There is a lot of parents out there. Let me tell you that now. And but what it is, they've got no support from the government because this is what the government. They're so backward. All they talk about is oh, vulnerable children. We're forgetting. There were a lot of single mothers out there who ain't got no man to help them raise that child, mm -hmm. who are being threatened, intimidated, beaten up by their own children. Yet no one talks about that. Mm -hmm. No one talks about these women who are trying to do the right thing by their kids. So we got, I got one, one lady who heard a noise at about one o'clock in the morning. She woke up out of her bed. She came down and she saw her son trying to get out the front door. Mm -hmm. Guess how old the boy is, 14. Where's mm -hmm. he going at one o'clock in the morning? Mm -hmm. So he, she says, listen, what are you doing? You're supposed to be going to school the next day. He told her three times. First he said, shut up. Then he said, she said, listen, I'm not letting you out at one o'clock in the morning. Then he started saying to her, oh, there's a cab out there waiting for me. I need to go. Let Move out my way. Move out my way. And he told her again, shut up. Get out of my way. The next thing she knows, he punched her in the face. Wow. So people need to understand. We're not talking about parents who are bad parents. We're talking about parents who are trying to be good parents and getting beaten up by their own kids. So, so what's your advice? So, okay. So Sheldon, right? What's your advice to parents? I mean, and this is going back to my initial um, initial question now, is that you know if you spot this change in behaviour, how do you address it then? If well, if say for if instance you know it gets into a confrontational aspect like you're you know you're giving us these examples of. So basically, when it's it's, it's very difficult because the, the, it's very difficult because what's happened is. Things are changed. The, the behaviors I'm talking about is not going to be expressed by every child. Mm -hmm. So it's about um, teachers have to be more clever. Um, and some of them are. I'm not going to knock that because some of the teachers are very clever and they've worked it out. And that's why they call me or they call the local authority and the local authority will call me. Yeah. Now, what the, the problem is there isn't a fixed answer to it. What it is, is that you've got to look at your household. You've got to look at your children and think to yourself, okay, is what's changed in your child mm -hmm. since the age of 10 going to secondary school? Because remember, that's where the problem lies. Mm -hmm. In primary school, if you don't identify the issues in, from when they're in primary school, it's too late because by the time they get to secondary school, they're already in the gang. That's the reason why it's imperative to do prevention work. Prevention work will mean we will identify the child's behavior at an earlier age. But what happens in this country, we don't do that. We wait till they go to secondary school and then we say, oh, gangzang, can you come in because they're in the gang? But it's too late because if you're already in the gang, it's going to be very difficult to get that person's mindset to change. Mm -hmm. So when you ask the question of what can you do as a parent, you have to look at your own individual own. OK, so an example would be if you have a son, is he coming in with new trainers? Is his language changing? Because remember, the language of the street is primarily the black language. Mm -hmm. That's where it's come from. I know people don't want to hear that, but it is. The street language is black. It isn't no misconception. That's nothing being racist. That is a fact that we created that language and everyone's adopted it. And so what happens is, like the, the girl from Reading, her mum 
um, she 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 noticed that she didn't understand her daughter anymore because she was speaking street slang, mm-hmm. right? So what that obviously is a is a direct sign. Obviously, quite easy because it's a middle class family. Now, if you're from a working class family, that might not be so easy. Yeah, it's not such a big pointer, yeah, right? Because yeah, that's right. Because your dad may already speak like that, or your mum may already speak like that. So what you've got to look at is be the the um, the mannerism and behaviour. So for instance. Coming in, you've told them to come in at eight. They come in at twelve. Yeah, um, that's an example. They're sneaking out at night, not telling you where they're going. The door just shuts. Um, cabs are turning up outside the door. Um, the phone is ringing. As soon as the phone rings, they're running out the front door. These are the signs that we all have to look for. But like I said, it isn't one size fits all. We have to understand we're in a social media chain. So things happen that you might not hear about. So, for instance, your son could be in his bedroom. Suddenly, the phone doesn't ring, but something on social media comes up. Maybe somebody's done some Snapchat to him, or maybe somebody sent him a, 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 um, something on Twitter, and he flew out the house. So uh, one of the things I will say parents should do, and I, I've been educating, I'm trying to educate parents around this, is you must know the passwords of, of your kids' social media. You must know what they're doing because they could be bullied on social media or they could bu- bu- be bullying somebody else. So what I would say to parents is, one, know who your kids' friends are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't allow your kids to sleep at other people's houses unless you know the parents of that household. Right. Don't allow your kids to hang around with somebody who you know gets excluded from school on a regular basis because mm-hmm. that will influence him him or her to be like them. Okay? Because right. remember the negative influence of the world overpowers good most yeah. of the time. When we're talking about children, I'm talking, not adults necessarily. So what I'm saying is is that we've got to understand that it's about us as parents, us as teachers taking a stance to say, okay, there's not a one-size-fit-all. Because that kid plays about doesn't mean he's in a gang. Uh, or because that kid has got um, learning difficulties means he's going to be groomed. What we have to do is now look at the society we're in and realize as adults we've failed, as parents, we have. There's no doubt about that. Mm, and just coming to terms with that, isn't it? Yeah, or just facing it straight on and say, look, you know what, I've got a problem exactly, here. And then let's, let's move on. That's right. And we've got to address those issues. And what's also, as a government, we've got to look at our recruitment strategies. Why are we not recruiting black and Asian teachers where a predominantly of most of the kids in that school are of that um, background? Why are we not doing it? Mm. Why are our kids being excluded at such a large rate? Is it that our teachers are not culturally, they don't understand the culture of, of the people they're educating? And, and the answer to that is yes, they don't understand. So mm-hmm. every white teacher in the, this country needs to go back to school to understand culture, to mm-hmm. understand what does it mean when you talk But I think young- that, though, Sheldon, right, is also a not just cultural, it's generational gap, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, there is that those factors. I mean, sorry to butt in here. But, you know, it's been uh, an education. You've educated me in the world of county lines in that sense. Uh, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, thanks once again for joining us on the Drive Time Show. No problem. Excellent. Yeah, All you right. too as well, Sheldon. Thank yes, you very much. You All right, bye. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. And I think one of the points that Sheldon was like talking about, or one of the major points is that parental the role of the parent right 
uh, and it can never be understated. And um, I made reference to this at the beginning. So I'll just uh, paraphrase or quote from His Holiness uh, Mirza Masra Ahmed, head of the worldwide uh, Amadi Muslim community, at his address to the Jocelyn of France in 2019. In today's world, people are abandoning faith and denying the existence of God at an alarming rate. Muslims who live in this society and their children are also being influenced by this view. Therefore, Amdi Muslim parents have the great responsibility to safeguard themselves against the negative influences of society and do the same for their children. One of a woman's greatest responsibilities is the moral training of her children. Any moral weakness in a child can affect the entire family, particularly in a secular society. The good moral training of children can be a highly sensitive matter. Mothers should aspire to reach the highest standards in the moral training of their children and turn them into polished jewels. These children should be models of purity and piety, focused on God and excelling in knowledge and understanding so that they can then guide and lead the world. In particular, mothers need to be role models for their daughters in terms of modesty, since the values and practices of Western society do not safeguard the modesty of women. Only the teachings of the Holy Quran provide women with this protection. Fathers too have a responsibility in supporting mothers in the moral training of their children. They should uh, compete with them and neither, uh, I should say, they should cooperate with them and neither criticize their wives in front of their children nor undermine them. In Asian societies, many times a barrier develops between fathers and sons at the age of 15 or 16. This is wrong and should be prevented and should be prevented. Fathers should cultivate friendly relationships with their teenage sons and guide them through the challenges of navigating this society at this vulnerable age. So, you know, when we're talking about, um, you know, what is the answer to this? You know, how do we stem um, or, or try and help out uh, with this recruitment of vulnerable children? Uh, from these uh, drugs gangs, uh, these county line gangs, you know, we have to address those root causes, which is or are stemming from the home parental guidance. Join me after the five o'clock news when we will be talking about self-esteem. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording. And lines are now closed. Asalaamu Alaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome back to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, in our studios here at uh, Voice of Islam in South London. Uh, we just had in the first hour a very interesting um, chat, really, with Sheldon, uh, with Sheldon, uh, sorry, Sheldon Thomas regarding county lines. We will now be embarking upon a journey of, I suppose, self revelation, right? or I should say self-esteem, because that's our next topic. Self-esteem and to have confidence without arrogance. Now, in our lives, self-esteem is the foundation of self-worth and growth. It's the mirror reflecting how we see ourselves, which ultimately fuels self-confidence or confidence in general. This compass guides us, shaping our ability to embrace strengths, handle change and be kind to ourselves. But how can we strike a balance between being, you know, confident uh, without actually, you know, overstepping the line into just seeming to be arrogant regarding it? 
My Lord, open out for me my breast, and ease for me my task, and loose the knot of my tongue, that they may understand my speech. This is uh, chapter 20, verses 26 to 29 of the Holy Quran. And I suppose an explanation of these verses that, you know, Allah Ta'ala wants us to you know, be confident in his creation of us, but not to overstep that confidence in the sense that, you know, we think we are better than our neighbor, better than you know, our family members, because then that's when confidence and self-esteem, which is espoused from that confidence, oversteps into arrogance. Now, the power of self-confidence and what it can actually give that individual, um, it's, I suppose, quite understated. But self-confidence is a powerful attribute that holds the key to a happier and more fulfilling life. Uh, it serves as a shield against fear, uh, against fear and anxiety, following individuals uh, to silence the inner voice that often whispers, I can't do it. I mean, how many of us, uh, and I count myself, uh, whenever we've encountered a task um, which I suppose seems insurmountable, or something that you know takes us outside of ourselves, which is a bit you know uh, beyond our experience, and then our initial um, our initial reaction is, you know what, I can't do that. That's just too much for me. I don't know where to start, and you know that form of procrastination. And um, being too cautious, let's say, overcautious, actually stops us experiencing new experiences uh, and pushing our boundaries and finding out actually what are um, what you know what our uh, capabilities truly are, whether they be um, more mental or you know whether they be uh, in our skill sets. You know, we have to try and kind of push those out now by bolstering one's confidence it becomes possible to break free from this cycle of overthinking this procrastination and i suppose this critic of one's self uh, it provides the motivation to actually pursue goals and dreams and i, I think you know th that's what determines those uh, who our achievers, whether it be in career terms, whether it be in personal terms, is that self-belief that you are able to do it, that I can do it, I can go that extra mile. And, you know, this process or self-confidence, I mean, the process of building confidence involves achieving small milestones that leave uh, that lasting sense of uh, accomplishment. And I suppose, you yeah, know, when we look at whether it be a project of work, uh, a personal project, which is, you know, a huge step uh, and a change in our lifestyles, maybe, that sometimes it can be overwhelming. And to achieve that, you just take little steps towards it, maybe achieving little goals, which uh, may be mundane uh, by the whole uh, in your daily routine will actually um, accelerate you to that ultimate goal, whether it be in career or personal. Now, you know, this sense of triumph over these um, the, the, these, these, these little steps, uh, these little goals, 
Um, so this sense of triumph over adversity serves as a beacon reminding individuals that they are have conquered that self-doubt in the past and can do so again in all aspects of life. Now, uh, as I stated, is whether mastering a skill, achieving a fitness goal maybe, uh, excelling academically, uh, the confidence gained from past successes becomes a powerful ally in facing life's challenges with courage and determination. And, you know, if you, I suppose, you know, if you you like sports and you're used to winning, you know, whether it be in an individual basis or within a team uh, environment, you get used to have that feel of winning, stepping over the winning line. And once you become accustomed to that feeling, then you can translate those feelings, those skill sets to other uh, objectives. But to talk more about self-esteem, I'm, I'm joined by uh, my first guest of the afternoon regarding this. I'm joined by Kat Weiser, and Kat is the Chief Officer of Esteem. Uh, and uh, with a remarkable tenure of 15 years at the organization, bringing a wealth of experience and expertise to the forefront. Um, having completed an MA degree in the prestigious Institute of Developmental or development studies in 2019, he has consistently demonstrated his commitment to personal growth and personal development. Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, Kat. Thank you for joining me on the Drive Time Show today. Hi. Thank you for having me. So I need to <laughs> I need to correct myself because the bio said he. Apologies. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you caught that, Kat. So, uh, yeah, apologies for that. Um, so we're talking about self-esteem, and I just make some pointers that you know there's some easy steps how to how to you know increase one's self-esteem but you know i suppose nowadays you know one doesn't want that self-esteem and that confidence to actually you know cross that line into arrogance and what people mm. perceive to be arrogant i mean what are some of the common signs and indicators that someone may be struggling with the opposite low self-esteem and you know how does uh, how do yourself and esteem as an organization uh, identify and address these signs? Um, yeah, it's a good question. And we, we as, as, you know, as it says on the tin, esteem is all about self-esteem and um, growing in confidence. And we think we see a lot of young adults struggling with their self-esteem. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the, a lot of it comes to um, things around yeah, sort of negative self-perception, perhaps. We know that there's a lot of issues created by social media, um, a lot of pressures from society. And this sort of manifests in people feeling negative about themselves, and that might come out through how they talk about themselves, um, sort of saying, you know, I, I don't feel good enough for this, or, mm -hmm. um, yeah, a lot of self-doubt, really. Um, and then the sort of physical signs as well. Um, people, um, you know, body language around sort of poor eye contact. Um, you know, just physically not holding themselves um, in a in a in a confident way, which might you know might be the opposite of that. If somebody was confident, you know, you might see somebody coming in and smiling and holding themselves upright, mm -hmm. um, looking you right in the eye, uh, speaking confidently, and yeah, that's that's quite often. Um, what young well particularly young people but a lot of people struggling with self-esteem um yeah they might they might not be uh, mm, these these are the kind of like the physical that. pointers yeah 
Yeah. So do you think, Kat, right, that, um, you know, we had the pandemic, right, of COVID, and we still mm. have COVID, although people think it's gone away. Mm. It's still out there. But 2019. So do you feel that, you know, not just young people, right, but, you know, that uh, those of us, I mean, we were all affected globally, right, by COVID. And we had in this country a period of shutdown whereby, mm-hmm. you know, we, we basically, we cocooned ourselves, right? Yeah. And there was not that social interaction amongst uh, communities, family members, unless you were actually in a family bubble, right? Yeah. Uh, in your own home. Um, but say, for instance, you were just, you know, you're a single guy, single female, uh, living in a flat, and then you've been, you know, you, you've cocooned, you know, for the sake of the, the, the country, sake of the, the world because of COVID, right? Have you found, right, that that level of self-esteem, whatever it may have been, say, an average level of self-esteem, has that actually gone down because of COVID? I think that COVID compounded issues that were already existing, actually. Mm-hmm. I think that... Um, in quite a lot of areas of society, a lot of demographics are really um, struggling with a lack of resilience. Um, and there's a load of factors that can um, contribute to that. But there's, it's that sort of, you know, some people came out of the pandemic feeling, feeling all right about it, and mm-hmm. others really struggled and are still struggling now, um, as you say. And I think that's, that's, some people have coping mechanisms that perhaps have been... Um, you know, taught by their family or by overcoming adversity. Um, and others just really, um, yeah, for different reasons, haven't been able to build those coping mechanisms and build that self-resilience. Um, and when they're faced with these yeah, pandemics or, um, you know, financial insecurity or, mm-hmm. or a crisis in life, then then uh, it's much harder for them to bounce back. Yeah, because, I mean, I suppose the point I was making to see if that were the case with COVID uh, Mm -hmm. and the pandemic was that, you know, human beings are social beings by the whole. And we need that social interaction because, you know, a lot of, say, for instance, work practices went online, uh, education went online, whether you're a GCSE, A-level student, uh, university student. So, you know, what impact would that have then? Because, you know, it's so much easier to be impersonal, really, uh, yeah. on social media because, you know, it's a text, it's a, a WhatsApp. There's no emotion attached to even, say, for instance, if you're going to sack someone, right, yeah. giving them an email. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm a bit old school. I mean, I think confidence uh, and self-esteem, you feel that. I mean, it's a lot easier to gauge self-esteem and confidence when you see it reflected in your peers in your work um in your workplace because you get a you get an instant reaction right yeah definitely we we are social beings like you say and actually there's a lot of studies into the five ways to well-being and one of the main ones is is connect Mm -hmm. uh you know we we need those connections and um yeah covid really (laughs) ripped communities apart and it's not just covid it's you know, a sort of um, uh, communities are drifting apart. Families are um, moving to different areas and mm-hmm. we're losing those really important connections that, yeah, like you say, role model how to um, behave socially and 
um, learn from one another and support each other and things like eating together and the mm-hmm. real joys in life that come from being together with, with our peers and our family and our community. It's so important. It's an essential yeah, part of mm. flourishing in, in life, isn't it? Mm, true. So, I mean, what situations or, or circumstances, let's say, do people tend to display uh, self-esteem accompanied by arrogance? Uh, I mean, what factors contribute to this combination? Because obviously this, it's a very, you know, not very um, appealing look to tell you the truth but i mean you know what are the situations or circumstances where people tend to display this yeah it's really interesting um at esteem we work in a very trauma-informed way and quite often people use arrogance um or other sort of unacceptable human um you know um behaviors that uh to to make up for something that they're uh, quite often a fear or over overcompensating for something. Mm-hmm. Um, y- you know, people often feel threatened and so they might come across as arrogant. It's, it's like a defense mechanism. Um, oh, I see. Right, yeah, okay. quite often. So that, um, that, is, that is, I suppose, the, the major um, reason, I suppose, major reason uh, well, why people come over as arrogant then is that, that they themselves are lacking something or that they have a fear of something. Yeah, or shame about something. You know, there's a lot of cultural expectations, family pressures, um, social media uh, influences about how we should behave and what we should um, portray to one another. And, uh, yeah, it it can be quite confusing, I think, for people. And, um, yeah, you, we, we some people get, get it wrong a little bit and come across as, as arrogant. Mm. And, yeah, instead of kind of, I suppose, you know, with baby steps um, and understanding your own uh, failings and gain, gaining strength from that, um, yeah. you become more kind of like, actually, I'm going to go on the offensive. Yeah, yeah. It's like you're covering up for weakness or um, you have, yeah. Mm. So, so you know, I mean, there are mental factors regarding this or low self-esteem, uh, maybe physical ones, but also... Um, there are financial ones. So, for instance, if one's financial situation, how does that impact upon, you know, self-esteem? And, you know, if it's a negative one, you know, what strategies uh, can can someone use to nurture uh, or to, to promote a more positive image? Mm. Yeah, I think, again, it comes often comes back to shame. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we live in quite a consumer society. Uh, there's a lot of expectations on living up to the Joneses. Um, yeah, and, and particularly around, um, in, in some cultures, young men and having to be the provider or being um, expected to be the ones, um, you know, who are wealthy and doing well. Uh, and, and perhaps those feelings around not, being, not feeling like they're good enough um, can really impact their self-esteem. And, and also for women, um, if they, you know, financially, struggling financially and they, they might feel like they're, they're not able to, um, yeah, provide provide for their, their children or, yeah, as, or any anyone really in society who's struggling financially. I think it has a massive knock-on effect. Um, there's a lot of socioeconomic factors um, where, you, yeah, you see a big disparity in people's self-esteem when they're just really struggling because it's stressful not having enough money. But say, for instance, right, you are 
um, accustomed, let's say, right, accustomed mm. to being in a low-income environment. Mm. Um, and then, you know what, you've built your own strategies. Like, you know what, I know, uh, given the, you know, the, the, the current economy as well that we are in in the UK, right, yes. uh, with the cost of living crisis, uh, inflation still around about 6%, uh, bank base rates up, you know, if you're a mortgage payer. So actually, you know what? If I'm on the lower echelons, right, or the lower income scale, I'm used to this, okay? Mm. What impact does it actually have on your self-esteem? Or is there a greater impact, say, for instance, when you are, say, for in, um, um, middle class and you've lost your job and then all these cost of living crisis increase in inflation uh having to pay a, a, a you know a higher mortgage uh, payment every month is the is the disparity greater then i think statistically that people from a lower socioeconomic background will have a much more adverse uh, impact from um you know the current the current financial crisis mm-hmm. uh, you know people are at risk of losing their homes they can't feed their families they can't pay their bills um, whereas people from a middle um, and upper income, yeah, they will, you know, they will definitely feel it. But I think perhaps the um, they have a bit more of a safety net, and often their families will will be will have um, greater socioeconomic power. Wow. Whereas people from a low, lower economic background tend to have family members and communities around them who are also struggling, and so mm. they can't pull together. So, so what's your advice then to those who are, you know, in those low incomes and the, you know, that, that pressure? Because you can imagine, you know, it's it's like waiting for a dam to burst, right? And yeah. It's the straw that broke the camel's back. And how, you know, how can you, because you know, you are your self esteem and your confidence is taking a hammering all the time, right? So yeah. how, you know, how can you, you know, how can you, you know, turn that around in terms of, obviously, you know, if you won the lottery <laughs> all your all your problems are solved but in the advent of that not happening how yeah. can you you know just get a better self-image of yourself you know promote yeah. that self-esteem say look you know what i'm still a you know i'm still worth something right as an individual yeah i think you know we have to be kind to ourselves it's um we <laughs> building that resilience is um is so important and it takes a, a little bit of lifting the pressure off you know, we're so um, we're often so stressed, and we can't see the wood for the trees. And mm-hmm. actually, just getting out into nature and, and being around some trees um, can be a really good way of, of um, releasing some of that pressure. Realizing that you know we're um, yeah, yeah. taking some time for yourself and trying to get things in perspective, having some breathing space. Mm-hmm. Um, like I was saying earlier, the, the six ways to well being which includes caring for the environment um, connecting and giving back and lots, lots of those things um, really are important in, in maintaining our self-esteem when we're facing a lot of adversity like this financial crisis. Mm. And do you, do you kind of like find that there are actually variations in um, self-esteem across genders and age groups and you know, is is you know, are there distinct approaches to self-esteem building amongst these different demographics? Yeah, I think um, it really, it, yeah, there definitely are distinctions, and I think it's not to say that one 
um, demographic group has it worse than the others mm-hmm. because they all experience it in different ways, I think. For example, um, there's a lot of, uh, for, for women particularly, a lot of um, scrutiny around body image and uh, quite a lot of sexualization of women mm-hmm. uh, and that feeds into how people feel about themselves, you know, whether they're being judged by other people or what they should look like. Um, and then, for example, men, I think there's a lot of expectations around um, being, you know, masculinity. And mm-hmm. That alpha strong. male. Alpha male, um, not showing um, vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, but actually, you know, in all of these cases, I think there's um, activities which can promote people, people's creativity, um, and like you were saying, connecting together. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, trying new things, getting out doing something different a lot of sports and um anything active really which really promotes that sort of um yeah feeling of feeling like you've done something with your day and you've got out of the house and uh, yeah because like even i mean i'm not majorly sporty i'm an old mm-hmm. old fella now but even when i go out for a round of golf you know you're out in nature um and yeah just doing something actually increasing your heart rate a bit you yeah. you know, release those you know those those chemicals in your body the endorphins right the feel good yeah. uh, and you you do you feel good about even if it's momentarily you 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 have that feeling that you know actually all things are you know ketris paribus being equal they're not too bad actually yeah yeah it's not it's it's always there's always a way forward and actually as you know our society. Um, could do a lot more and um, one of the things that we're trying to do as team is is creating opportunities where people can feel valued but also add value and I mm-hmm. think that we can all do that within our families our friendship groups is, is um you know doing things that, that where people feel valued and also asking for help and that really helps other people to feel like they matter mm-hmm. yeah true yeah. true that well Kat it's been a pleasure speaking to you this afternoon thank you very much for joining me on the drive time show it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank Have you. Have me. a good day. Take care. Bye. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. I mean, uh, we, I think Kat was talking about um, some strategies uh, to build uh, self-esteem. Now, self-confidence is acknowledging uh, one's strengths and capabilities and therefore relying on what one has uh, one has to achieve what one desires and for attaining to the true essence of humanity. This conception of self-confidence is not in conflict with uh, Islamic uh, religious teachings. Rather, it is actually exactly in line with the will of Allah Ta'ala and acceptable by all good God-fearing people. Now, the way to build indestructible self-esteem is simple and its foundation is uh, is to stop relying just on yourself but absolutely relying on the creator of the heavens and the earth so it's almost like an abdication of responsibility that's it an abdication of responsibility because but that's in in a sense uh, actually i'll correct myself not a complete abdication because that would mean that you just sit on your hands for the rest of your life no i don't mean that what I mean is that actually we have to plan, like say, you, you know, whether it be in your career, whether it be in your personal relationships, um, anything, you have to plan, have a strategy, have a goal, right, to move forward. But if that plan 
were not to succeed through your endeavors, that doesn't mean that you give up. All it means is that maybe God has deemed it not the correct time for that plan to be effective for you. Maybe that plan isn't the correct plan for you. That is all. So, you know, this, this, you know, you have to put your trust in God's will, ultimately. Now, this has been explained to us through the verse of the Holy Quran where Allah, uh, those who have patience and rely upon their Lord, having patience, means that and only that. It means to be persistent. Uh, and in this case, not just to lay down and accept all those negative things. Uh, those who are steadfast and put their trust in their Lord. This is, you know, chapter 29, verse 30, uh, verse 60. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, said, None of you truly believes until he loves for his brother what he loves for himself. And, you know, this, this is this self-emancipation. It's like not acknowledging or thinking that, yeah, your own individual, individualistic desires are all that matters if you abrogate them and actually desire whatever you desire for yourself for your brother for your fellow human being coming back to um, something that Kat said uh, our previous guest Kat Weiser it's that feeling that you can build by giving right uh, and building your own self-esteem from you know giving to others really now um I'm going to throw some stats at you. Uh, now, these according to G here, a staggering 85% of women do not believe that they are attractive. So this is going back to something that uh, I spoke with Kat regarding the demographics. Uh, the self-esteem affects you know the gender uh, differently. 85% of women do not believe that they are attractive. Only 23% of women... Uh, feel confident in their appearance, leaving four to five, uh, four out of five, I should say, women lacking confidence in their looks. Nearly two thirds of women lack confidence in their job abilities. Um, a significant majority, and this is 62% of women, uh, believe, uh, do not perceive themselves as intelligent. That's that's you know that's very alarming really a significant majority 62% of women do not perceive themselves as intelligent uh, more than half of women that's uh, 56% believe that they are not liked by others over 50% of uh, 16 to 24 year olds uh, uh, frequently worry about others opinions only 45% of men said that they believe other people generally like them just 19% of men say they think they are attractive. Only 42% of men feel self-confident in their ability to do their jobs. Uh, I hope I'm not <laughs> giving a bit of a, uh, a kind of like a knock in the gender, whether you're a male or a female, own self-esteem. But, you know, it just puts everything into perspective, I suppose. Uh, I mean, these stats uh, shed light on the I suppose the the very complex nature of, you know, how we perceive ourselves uh, and confidence per se. I mean, it emphasizes the need for greater self acceptance and support for individuals of all ages uh, and genders. Now, in Islam, 
A woman is completely independent per, uh, personality. She can make any contract or bequest in her own name. She is entitled to inherit in her position as mother, as wife, as sister and as daughter. She has the perfect liberty to choose her husband. It's narrated by the Holy Prophet's wife, peace and blessings be upon her, Aisha. What a woman... Uh, uh, Sorry, let me start again. Aisha, that a woman entered her house with two of her daughters. She asked for charity, but Aisha could not find anything except a date which was given to her. The woman divided it between her two daughters and did not eat any herself. Then she got up and left. When the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, came to the house, Aisha told him about what had happened. And he declared that when the woman was brought to account on the day of judgment about her two daughters they would act as a screen for her from the fires of hell so you know this 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 account fully i suppose illustrates the beauty of islam that you know there is um equality not just amongst uh the two genders but equality amongst you know, women in itself, that the mother um, divided that one date between her two, her two daughters. And it's that, actually, you know what, I don't matter, actually, you know, my daughters matter more. And thus in Islam, you know, when you are held to account, then that account or that uh, counting of Allah Ta'ala will take that, those daughters will screen the mother from you know the gates of hell but to talk more about self-esteem i'm joined by my next guest of the afternoon imam Khalid gonzalez uh, who is our missionary or the amadir muslim uh, uh, missionary in charge in spain assalamualaikum peace and blessings be upon you imam Khalid. thank you once again for joining me on the drive time show no, no, always a pleasure, never a chore. <laughs> I should say. So I shouldn't laugh at my own jokes. It's so boring. <laughs> so anyway, we're talking about self-esteem, and you know how can we um, build that self-esteem and not actually, you know, go over the bounds so that it becomes arrogance? I mean, how does Islam encourage believers to develop that, you know, being self-confident whilst remaining humble? and um, submissive to the will of Allah? Yeah, I mean, I think every single question regarding morality uh, specifically can be answered by looking at the life of the Holy Prophet, peace okay. and blessings of God be upon him. So throughout every instance um, of his life, we see uh, a pattern of pure, um, you can say, confidence in his beliefs, mm -hmm. but at the same time, the highest levels of humility. Mm -hmm. uh, recently, I was translating one of... Uh, one of the commentaries of uh, of the Quran by the second Khalifa, and then it was a an account of when one of the chief chiefs of Mecca they were violently abusing and insulting the Holy Prophet peace and God uh, peace and blessings of God be upon him, and his only reply was What have I done? I've only given the message of God, and other than that he said nothing else. He kept quiet the whole time, mm -hmm. and he listened to all the abuse, all the swear words, everything he had to say. And the man even begun begin, uh, began to hit him with a stick, mm -hmm. and he did. He retaliated in no way, and so this is where we understand what humility is, right? Mm -hmm. uh, this has got nothing to do with self-esteem because it doesn't attack or it doesn't 
it doesn't uh, have a negative impact on what you believe. Self-esteem is something within, not outward. Mm-hmm. So if your self-esteem is, which it should be, um, the root of which should be your beliefs and your core principles, your values, then what anyone says or what anyone thinks about you, it is unaffected. It stays unaffected. Mm. So what you're saying is like, effectively, your your religion in itself is a shield. It's a shield, right. So if you if you know what you believe in, and it doesn't have to be with religion, it could be with anything. Mm-hmm. For example, if you understand, right, that, and, and I'll come to the arrogance part, if you understand that this specific thing is correct, and you've understood that through experimenting, through experience, and uh, through knowledge, whether that's studying, etc., then it wouldn't be arrogance to say that I believe this is the case. Okay. And the more you practice this, um, this uh, kind of, um, I would say, uh, how would you say it? Methodology. I think of all the, I think of all the Spanish words at the moment. <laughs> uh, the confidence, right? Um, mm-hmm. Then what happens is you naturally, just like you build muscle, you build a natural a level of confidence. Mm-hmm. And so you know when to exercise that in the appropriate time. And you don't do that when you're unsure about something. And this is where humility steps in. If you are unsure about something, whether this pertains to your beliefs, whether it's to do with something that you've seen, experienced, or know, then you should not simply out of confidence say, oh, you know, this is the case. The more you practice the balance between um, confidence, self-esteem, and also, and you regulate it with your humility, you'll, you'll, be, you'll find yourself in a position where people aren't, um, and it is, it, it, even though we do say what people think it doesn't matter, to some extent it does. Mm-hmm. You will We're social beings at the end of the day, right? Right. So you have to learn to live together and you'll mm-hmm. find out that you're not bothering people so much with your arrogance and you know when to be humble. But at the same time, you have the self-confidence in times when you are certain about something mm. and, you, and you demonstrate that. But don't you think that, um, or maybe you do. So my question being that, uh, you know, self-esteem, um, confidence is built upon you having a knowledge of oneself's abilities and, and actually not just your abilities, but your inabilities, right? And that it's not, you know, it's not a, um, a negative in terms of your confidence, in terms of your self-esteem. Just actually hold your hand up and say, look, I don't know, right? I don't know the answer to that. Right. You know, maybe you can help yeah. me with that. Right. That's exactly what even, you know, the Holy Prophet, once he, uh, the Holy Prophet, blessings, uh, blessings of God be upon him, once he had uh, advised someone to, uh, in terms of how to farm, Mm-hmm. And so they formed that way, and the the next year they saw a decline in in, in crops, um, revenue, etc. And the prophet uh, told them, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that um, you know, I'm if any any topic regarding religion and God, etc. Then yes, I will give you the right answer with regarding with uh, regards to these things. Maybe I could make a mistake. He even said regarding judging certain cases, mm-hmm. right? Because obviously one of his jobs was was to uh, solve Educa- adjudicate, yeah. Right. So he said that, you know, if someone does um, abuse his power of persuasion and, and the way he speaks is so eloquent and convincing that he's, his case seems more convincing than the others, than mm-hmm. the latter's. And I, being human, not God, make a mistake and put it in his favor, put the, make the decision in his favor, then that person will only be the, 
uh, devouring and, and consuming the hellfire within his belly. Mm. So, yeah, of course, you know, even the prophet of God, who's for us the most perfect being who's ever lived, mm-hmm. on you know, the most perfect human, I would say, even he says, he, he, you know, just like you said right now, that where you are not sure, where you don't know something, well, he claims and he says it clearly and openly that, you know, I am not God, I can make mistakes. Mm-hmm. True. So how can parents, uh, Imam Khalid, how can parents and educators yeah, incorporate uh, Islamic teachings uh, in raising children uh, with a healthy level of self-esteem uh, and whilst at the same time instilling humility and gratitude? Right. So self-esteem, like we established before, comes from experience and knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. So if you know something works, you, you have confidence in it. And it's the same way it works with yourself as well. Self-esteem is more is re- regarding yourself, right? But we we're talking about confidence as well here. So if the parents can still, first of all, believe in the children, mm-hmm. then what will happen is that belief will then be experimented naturally through obedience. Mm-hmm. Once it's told, listen, you can pray for this, then what will happen is the child, he will begin to pray or she will begin to pray. Mm-hmm. Once pray, then ined- inevitably will come the experience, which is acceptance of that prayer if this builds over time naturally you will gain a strong confidence in the in the belief of god this is the same with with any quality so if a child then practices if we take the, another stance which is education right the child doesn't feel like they have self-esteem what they can do is if the parents instill within them the value of education to study then they'll feel much more confident in many areas and aspects of life because mm-hmm. they have seen that through their knowledge, they were correct in many uh, many times, right? Mm-hmm. And that naturally builds self-confidence. It's usually the people who have much, they have studied much more. And even in school, I remember the people who were much smarter. And they were the people who had more self, self-esteem. Now, there are other areas, for example, looks and appearances that can damage your self-esteem. Right. But those things are very uh, they usually seem to be temporal and those you can change through working out or through diet, etc., etc. But uh, but self-esteem usually is boosted through knowledge. In fact, if you look at anyone who is smart or you could say extremely intelligent, you don't see any lack of self-esteem within that. Even if you even if you look at, for example, Hazur, the way he um, is interviewed by the highest people in, in different different polit- political areas. Mm-hmm. He seems completely unfazed, even in front of a whole hall of, of delegates from, from the European Union and, and mm-hmm. other places. And he, can, he seems completely unfazed. Why? Because of the certainty in the knowledge that he has. Mm-hmm. So instilling, the parents should instill education, but more than that, belief in God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think behind- that reference that you made to His Holiness, uh, Mr. Masur Ahmed, uh, the head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, is that I, I've I've seen um, with my own eyes, obviously, those interviews with uh, the heads of the EU delegates, and yes, that I suppose that confidence, uh, that aura that he has around him, uh, His Holiness, is that. Um, that 100% conviction that he has that he is delivering the message of God right and that comes obviously from 
from different forms of revelation, from different experiences from God. That's how you know it. And so I think the Jamaat especially, the people of this community, especially the youngers, we're going through a phase of, I wouldn't even say just youngers, even people up to the age of 40. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of us there, we're going through this kind of... Um, um, an infer- inferiority complex mm-hmm. and uh, when it comes to faith we seem quite unsure mm-hmm. but that happens because of no knowledge in a certain area mm-hmm. and because obviously we've been brought up to be good and kind with well our parents have tried to add their best to give us the teaching of being kind to others etc et so we don't have this we don't have this natural reaction where no no what I believe is correct and mm-hmm. so a lot of Ahmadis are falling into this trap of you know your beliefs are flawed Mm-hmm. And then they don't study about it. And because they don't study about it, they are left in doubt. Mm-hmm. And this doubt is very much linked to self-esteem. Because when I, I remember when I was in school and people were speaking and saying things about um, uh, Hazrat Masih Madras, the promised Messiah, I, hadn't, I didn't know even in that time that he was a prophet of God. Mm-hmm. These things, what do they do? They cause an inferiority complex. Because mm-hmm. you are left to think that, well, these people are the majority and they seem to be mocking me. Yeah, it's there must be. They must know something, right? Exactly. So they and those people haven't even studied properly. So I, that's why I said the second point is is first is belief and second education. Mm-hmm. So as you'll be left um, stranded in doubt for a long time. And mm-hmm. So these are the things. Well, I mean, the, you know, the, we, we try to live our lives as Muslims in the traditions of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him. And he said, you know, if you need to go as far as China, yeah, for knowledge, right? For education. Right. I mean, are, are there specific guidelines in Islam for individuals to recognize and overcome arrogance in their daily lives uh, and their interactions with others? Because it is quite, quite uh, well, it's, it's, a, it's a trap which I suppose Satan gives us, right? Or sets for us, which a lot of us do actually fall into is that actually because we feel um, that we have the greater experience and that we maybe whether it be in a field of uh, a work field right that I might have so much experience so many years of experience and then someone comes along and says no no we can do it this way mm. what you know uh, are there you know guidelines in Islam for in- individuals to recognize that right so the Quran is the best guideline for mm. all types of morals and the Quran clearly states you know Allah says um, that he does not love those who are arrogant he also says mentioned those people in in, in terms of uh, complimenting them for those who suppress mm-hmm. their anger and obviously anger is stemmed from pride and arrogance mm-hmm. so if we want to understand <clears throat> what arrogance is it's simply to believe that you are greater than something or someone and that can pertain to even ideas ideologies you know my mm-hmm. thoughts I believe are greater than mm-hmm. right so this happens even when when it comes to god so many people question and they say well i don't understand this mm. that's okay you know you can find out the answer you can go and study that but the problem is when people start becoming arrogant and what would that be that would be in this situation well my thinking my understanding is in fact superior to this law which i find in islam mm-hmm. or this thing which i this law which i find within the government the best and most honorable and most humble thing to do would be to go to someone who you believe understands this properly do your own research aside and speak to an expert mm-hmm. you know maybe someone in that field can give you the proper knowledge which you are looking for and that would then satisfy and not everyone has this. you know some people say oh i spoke to a scientist and he wasn't able to 
satisfy my thirst for knowledge or I spoke to a so-and-so expert, psychologist. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, there are many. There are mm-hmm. thousands and there are millions of people who are experts in such fields. So arrogance comes when you believe you know better and mm-hmm. the person in front of you is inferior to you. Mm-hmm. And so Allah says in the Quran that the best way to rid of arrogance um, is through taqwa. Mm-hmm. And that is fear of God. Mm-hmm. If you fear someone or a being, then the arrogance is ultimately diminished. Mm-hmm. Because if you, if you have fear of a being, then you understand it is superior to you. And this is the whole point of the word taqwa. It has two meanings. One which is, to, well, has many meanings. But one is, is to fear God and also to love Him. Mm-hmm. And if you, lo- if you fear Him, then ultimately you will believe He is greater and superior to you, more powerful to you. Then if you take the other meaning, which is love, if you love Him, more than you love yourself, like is mentioned in Hadith, than your family, than your friends, and all that is in the earth, then ultimately your love will be superior, it will be greater for him, meaning that eventually you will see him in another way, in another, through another perspective, as someone greater than you. And that is what ultimately diminishes arrogance, mm. when you recognize the greatness of God and the humble, you know, the, the humble. I suppose that are. that is um, when I suppose you have your uh, personal revelation, right, uh, in your relationship to God, and then that's only then that you feel that you are fully uh, submitted to the will of God. Right, right. Mm. So, yeah. So, how does Islam advise its believers or us believers to navigate the challenges of comparison with others in their daily lives and still maintain this positive image because you know society is like that right you know society now is steeped in materialism it's uh oh you know what the you know keeping up that expression keeping up with the joneses it's my neighbor has this then i'm gonna have this so i mean how does islam help us navigate this comparison of or this challenge of comparison could you rephrase the question please so you know islam yeah how does it advise us believers to navigate the challenge of comparison with others in their daily lives, because okay, so like consumerism and all these things. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it, that in itself, uh, I suppose, well, yeah. um, results in arrogance, right? It's like you know what, I'm driving a better car than those guys, right, you know. Right. And the lack of and the lack of that will cause in in the lack of self esteem. Yeah, right. So Islam Islam does say that. Um, I mean, even there was one hadith which is which always I always remember when it comes to these kind of things is so one man asked the Holy Prophet, the peace and blessings of God be upon him, that how can I become famous? And the Prophet replied to him uh, that well, if you do that which others do not do, and so we see many people starting trends. Mm-hmm. So obviously we have this notion idea that if you do something which people like, then eventually you'll get respect and and, and whatever, mm-hmm. right? Of attention that you're looking for yeah. but really it doesn't have to be that way mm-hmm. in fact if we look at the, the lives of the prophets they did exactly what you know what, what most people don't do today which yeah. is go away from the consumerism and consumerism is something which has existed since time immemorial since mm-hmm. forever it doesn't just exist now right yeah fine we have more technology and it's more advanced but these things have always existed mm-hmm. right so they what they did is they always avoided those paths of of desiring and always wanting more in terms of better. yeah but this is like uh, yeah you you made the point that uh, it's man's greed that is eternal right it's man's greed that is eternal and so how did they end up with the most attention in the world i mean if you think about it even now jesus is 
peace be upon him, followed by over 2 billion people, whether mm-hmm. they are practicing or not, he's accepted by at least 2.4 billion people who are mm-hmm. Christians. But then more than that, there are Muslims. Mm-hmm. And they accept the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings uh, be upon him, and that's over 2 billion as well. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about it, how much attention they're getting, they're getting more attention than anyone could ever get in the world. Mm-hmm. So if you are doing these things to get attention, respect, or to be noticed by people, then know that really that doesn't come from people. That what you're looking for comes from God. Mm-hmm. And God gives that honor and that respect to whoever he wishes, and that's what it says in the Qur'an. So it's a matter of knowing which path to take. If you're thinking, okay, how can I make money? How can I gain confidence? How can I be noticed? Then how are you going to do Are you going to rely on yourself, or are you going to rely on an all-powerful being who is present mm-hmm. and who has demonstrated that power, demonstrated that generosity through giving honor to various prophets, right? So it's, it's clear and cut. Or would you, you know, rely on yourself and, and, and try and do this yourself? I mean, it, it never works. I mean, many people, they suffer because their whole life they're trying to please others when really that never caused them, that never gave them any pleasure, never gave mm-hmm. them. So really this whole race of consumerism and this whole effort of trying to avoid low self-esteem, it ends up, you end up finding yourself in a cycle of continuous... Yeah, you're, you're just caught in a rut, really, aren't you? It's a never-decreasing right. circle. Right. So, and of course, there is the other aspect of making your, making sure that you are happy. You know, you don't do mm-hmm. everything for you. You know, make sure you do everything for God. But obviously, don't put yourself in situations where you feel uncomfortable just to make another person happy. Mm-hmm. And sometimes exactly. there are people who, even when it comes to marriage, they mm-hmm. marry certain people to make others happy. Mm-hmm. When it comes to buying certain things, they say, oh, I, buy, I bought this just to make you happy. Mm-hmm. They might not express it openly, but these are the reasons and they shouldn't be. Mm, they shouldn't be. And I think uh, your message to uh, myself and all our listeners out there is that ultimately there is only one defining principle amongst all of us in humanity uh, under the eyes of God is, and that is with taqwa, right? doesn't matter how much you earn, what color, race, creed, or you know you are, it's how righteous you, you, can, you are and can become. And that is the most attractive thing to any man's eye. Mm-hmm. And to anyone like Excellent. Okay, well, as I said, always a pleasure to speaking uh, to have you on the show, Imam Khalid. Thank you very much for joining me in the, on the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much. Uh, cool. uh, well, actually, we're coming to the end of the show, so no more phone calls. Not that we had any. But, uh, yeah, um, in terms of uh, self-esteem, right, and balancing that self-esteem so that it doesn't actually become... Um, arrogance so we heard from imam halid there that ultimately it's about that belief and submission to the will of god right it's having that true belief and that uh, connection with god which actually instills in yourself self-confidence so balancing uh, confidence and arrogance it's so crucial for per- uh, personal and you know whether it be professional growth um aligning with islamic principles of humility and self-reliance of God. So it's not thinking that actually I can just rely on myself and it'll work out. It's not. It's you have to rely on uh, our creator, you know, Allah Ta'ala. Uh, Islamic teachings emphasize that true self-confidence stems from trusting God and submission to his will, while condemning arrogance as a blameable characteristic. Distinguishing between confidence and arrogance reveals their subtle yet significant differences. Confidence in itself fosters trust, likability, and effective leadership, 
whilst arrogance can hinder peace collaboration. Ultimately, humility and self-reliance in our creator provide the path to true and genuine self-assuredness. Salman al-Farsi, may Allah be pleased with him, reported that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, said, there are three types of people to whom Allah will not speak on the day of judgment, nor will he purify and they will incur a painful punishment. An aged person who commits fornication, a person who is arrogant, and a man who is made uh, swearing by Allah as his goods, as he does not buy or sell without swearing by Allah. So with that final um, quote uh, uh, regarding the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, that brings us to the end of Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. A big thank you to our producers, uh, for the show today, Aisha Malik and Nura Sabah. A uh, big thank you to uh, my engineer in the back room, uh, Asad. And uh, we're just going to go to the six o'clock news after this.